0: Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. All right, so in this time we turn our Bible instruction time over to our brother Don Pell. Morning, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter number 25. Exodus chapter number 25. It is my intention for the next uh, three Sundays, including this one, to do a series on the Ark of the Covenant. I know uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of brethren that are, have having years past, and maybe some of them are still doing it with models of the tabernacle, and that is a very rich study, but I'm going to just focus on this one area, this one piece of furniture, namely the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, I want to begin reading about the ark as it's being constructed, beginning at verse number 10 in Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter number 25 and verse 10, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood or shittim wood, depending on what your translation is, two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around, and shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on the one side, and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubims of gold, of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim shall stretch forth or stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. The ark, first of all, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about three aspects of the ark this morning. First of all, its purpose. What was it for? What did it accomplish? Secondly, its fulfillment. And thirdly, its contents. And we will begin with its purpose. Why did God need the ark? Well, the ark represented the presence, the very presence of God among his people. And it was designed to deal with the one thing that separated God from his people. And that one thing was sin. And the ark was designed where a holy God could have fellowship and communion with ungodly, sinful man. So how does he do it? Well, there's the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat is the sprinkling of the blood. The holiness of God, represented by the two cherubims on each end of the mercy seat, with their wings stretched out facing each other. Uh, in years past, I particularly enjoyed a series that Lyddon Sheridan. I don't know if you remember who that brother is, but he had a model of the tabernacle. And I, for many years, when I thought about Sherubim, I thought of sweet little creatures, you know, thought about things about peace and that sort of thing. But Mr. Sheridan pointed something out, made total sense to me when he pointed it out. They were ferocious creatures. Their wings were spread out and they were facing one another and they were protecting the holiness of a mighty, almighty God, the ark itself. Now remember on top is the mercy seat and there's the sprinkling of the blood and the blood of course has significance for the life of the flesh is where? In the blood. And I will give it to you upon the altar To make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So, the Israelites can receive atonement as a result of the blood-sprinkled mercy seed. The writer of Hebrews says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. So, blood is an essential thing in God's Economy; It is his medium of exchange. And there we find a place where God could have fellowship with his people. That's what he wanted. He wanted to have fellowship with his people, but he had to deal with the sin issue. He writes to Moses, there I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubims, which are on the Ark of the Testimony. The next thing we notice about the ark is that it provided direction. Notice you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put poles into the ring on the sides of the ark. Why? That the ark may be carried by them. You see the ark was a pilgrim ark for a pilgrim people. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. They had to move when the ark moved. The ark led them. I'm reminded of a little course. It's not really a course, it's actually. It's uh, regrettable, I think, today that the church has lost sight of that getting so tied up with the things of this world and trying to change the world that they forgot that they're a pilgrim people. They're just passing through. The world is not my home. It's my temporary home, but it's not my permanent home. It's not my eternal home. I'm just passing through. God wanted the ark to be a pilgrim ark for a pilgrim people. I Think of Abraham. Think about Abraham for a minute. Abraham was very rich and he was very powerful and he could easily have been taken up with all the blessings that God poured upon him, being the father of a great nation and his, his seed being as the sands of the sea and all the promises that God made to Abraham. You'd think surely Abraham would have really gotten a grip of this world. But the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? He says he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham knew that this world was not his home, and he was just a passing through. Now, one other thing regarding direction. When they get into the land, this is what Joshua said to the children of Israel. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, the ark, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go. Why? Why? For you have not passed this way before. And here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Have you ever passed this way before? No. We live one time. Our life unfolds. We don't have any idea what's going to happen when we leave this place. We don't have any idea what's going to happen when we drive back to our respective homes. We don't have any idea what lies ahead the next year or two. You haven't passed this way before. So follow the ark. A little chorus that I used to enjoy leading in times past. My Lord knows the way. Well, good old Charles E. Fuller song. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is what? Follow. Follow. All I have to do is, you haven't passed this way before, Joshua said. Follow the ark. You're going into a strange land, land you don't know about. You don't know what's going to happen. There are enemies there. Follow the ark. While resting, the ark was positioned in the midst of the tabernacle. It it was the focal point of their lives. When traveling, the ark went out ahead of them. It led them. On one occasion, God expressed his deep displeasure when the ark, when someone attempted to drive the ark. And get ahead of the ark. And we'll talk about that in another message. A man named Uzzah met a sudden death when he touched the ark and died there for his error. Now, let's talk about its fulfillment. The Ark is absolutely a type of Christ and his word. And we see that in the Ark itself, in its construction. First of all, we see his humanity. The ark was made of acacia wood. It was something that was found right in the wilderness, right where they were. In the Gospel of John, we read, the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. He came among us right into this world. The writer of Hebrews says, as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He himself likewise shared in the same. So the acacia wood, his humanity. Then we have his deity, the mercy seat of what? Pure gold, a very precious metal. Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now they were looking at flesh and blood, weren't they? And yet Philip says, he who has seen me, has seen the father they were seeing the acacia wood and they were seeing the gold all at the same time timothy says he is the one who is the only potentate the king of kings the lord of lords who alone has immortality dwelling in unproachable light whom no man has seen or can see or to whom be honor and everlasting power amen The ark, as we said before, sets direction, and we see that, the poles and the rings of the ark, that they may be carried. Christ is the leader of our lives. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and what do they do? And What are they supposed to do? They follow me. The ark gives direction. Brother Romans says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace through God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And John talks about fellowship. Remember what the purpose of the ark was, that God can have fellowship with his people. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we have the purpose of the ark and have its fulfillment in Christ. And as we go through this series, we will see that the ark represents Christ and his word. Now, David read in Hebrews the contents of the ark, and they are, of course, significant as well. It was a testimony to God's provision for his people. First of all, we have what? The golden pot that had the manna. One of my favorite hymns is I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply. Notice some things about this, the ark representing Christ and his word. First of all, it came from above. There were no manna gardens in the wilderness. They couldn't plant. They couldn't plow. They couldn't get to sustain themselves. They had to totally depend on God for their sustenance, and it came from above. It had then to be gathered. And once you gathered it, if you didn't do something else, things weren't going to go so well. It had to be, what, eaten and ingested. It reminds us, of course, of Christ and his word. How often do we hear about people, you know, it's it's interesting that I believe it's still true that one of the best sellers or maybe the best selling book is what? The Bible. Best selling book. Best selling book. So there it is. It came from above. The holy scriptures, God's very word. There it is. And it's out in plentiful supply but then it has to be gathered, doesn't it? It's not enough to have the family Bible and put your name in it and put the records of the baptisms and the family members and the weddings and the anniversaries and all that sort of thing, and there it sits on the front table as sort of like a monument. And as we ponder this idea, how is it that the best read uh, boss purchase book in the entire world is what? The least what? Gathered, right? Read. It's not gathered just sits there and lays there on the ground. They don't bother to gather it at all, but that's not enough. That's not enough. Yes. You know, I've known people, they did a lot of gathering. I knew a family, some of you know who they are. They memorize huge bodies of scripture and memory is a great thing. Memorizing the word of God is a great thing, but some of those folks, just speaking to them, you knew that they didn't know some of the things that they were reading about. And the reason they didn't understand what they were memorizing is that they had not what? They had eaten it. God said, this man is there. I make it available to you. You've got to gather it, but it's for one purpose and one purpose only. It's going to sustain you. You need to take it, and you need to eat it, and you need to ingest it so it becomes a very part of your life. It was God's nourishment, and the remarkable thing about it is it satisfied the needs of everybody. There were children there. There were young adults there. There were older adults. There were grandparents there, grandchildren there. The manna sufficed for each it reminds us of the ark who came down from heaven, and he says, I'm what? The living bread. I'm the living bread. I'm the man, huh? I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, Christ and his word, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, it's interesting that during the temptation, Jesus said something to Satan that I used to really ponder. He said this. Remember when Satan enticed him to try to make bread out of stones? And you remember what Satan said, I mean what the Lord said to Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from what? The mouth of God. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I got to thinking about creation. You know how creation came about? God didn't take something here and something there. And if you go through creation, Genesis 1, every time you see God doing something, it says, God, what? Spoke. Yeah. God spoke, and it happened. Now, how is it that we're able to plant and plow? How is it that animals are able to find food to eat? Well, it's because God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, and it shall be for what? Food. See? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He is the sustainer of life, and we live by God's having said. That's how he managed to put creation together. He created it. The writer of uh, Hebrews rather, writes that the first principles of the oracles of God are likened to milk and strong meat. Peter states that new believers are like newborn babes who desire the sincere milk of the word that they may what? Grow thereby. It's the manna. I love what Jeremiah said about the matter. Jeremiah said this, or wrote this. Your words were found and I, what? Dissected them, bisected them, analyzed them, collected them. Memorize them. You can do all that, can't you? Collect them, diagnose them. You know, you can take them apart. You can put them together. You can analyze them. You can think about them. But Jeremiah said, "You know what? Your words are found, and I ate them." Wow, that's quite different. Isn't it? I ate. They become. And then he says, "Your word was to me." The joy and rejoicing of my heart. He didn't get any indigestion whatsoever. Even though there were some things that seemed contrary one to the other, he read the word of God and he said, it was the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And the psalmist declares it this way. He said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. He goes on to write, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than the honeycomb. And Peter writes, if indeed you have tasted, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Well, how do you taste that? You taste that by gathering it, by reading it, by adjusting it, and allowing it to be a very part of your being. Now we come to the third object. And that's Aaron's rod that budded. Now, what about that one? Aaron's rod that budded. Well, the rod that budded came a result of a rebellion by three men recorded in Numbers chapter 16. I'm going to give you the short version. It's a very short version. There were three conspirators. A man named Korah from the tribe of Levi. Two men, Dathan and Abiram, both from the tribe of Reuben. These men wanted what a lot of men want today. They wanted power, believing that they could transform the governance of Israel from a theocracy under the leadership of Moses into a democracy, allowing themselves to assume power. Here's what happened. And these guys are pretty clever. I mean, they got something really going here. We read, they rose up before Moses, with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes. Wow. Famous in the congregation, men of renown. So they got some pretty high-level people together. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, you take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift you yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now, God became angry. I mean, he was so angry that he said to Aaron and Moses, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them. In a moment. Wow, can you imagine kindling the anger of God to that extent? And Moses and Aaron intercede on behalf of God's people, and they said to the Lord, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And wilt thou be wroth with everybody, with the entire congregation? Now God responds in mercy, and he directs his judgment against those instigators, and there were some plagues. But eventually, you know the story, do you not? So these three men were told to gather in some area, and what did God do? He absolutely opened up the earth, and it completely swallowed those people and everything they had in the earth. Imagine what a sight that must have been to watch this. But here's the point. Here's the Earth's rod that budded. God now gives them an object lesson. And we find that object lesson... Verse 17. He says this, speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house. All their leaders, according to their father's houses, 12 rods, write each man's name on his rod. And then God said, the rod that blossoms, that's the rod that I choose. So they gathered those 12 rods before the tabernacle, and the next day we read that the rod of Aaron, the house of Levi, had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded right almonds. Then God said, put them in the ark. Why? To be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put them that I may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. Aaron's rod that budded speaks to us of the sovereignty of almighty God. I am God. I will choose whom I will. The psalmist said, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He chose the tribe of Levi. He chose Moses. It was a theocracy, and that's what God had intended for His people. The tablets of the covenant almost speak for themselves. We think of the Ten Commandments. We not. And we think of the, the the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, though, that not only do we have those laws. But if you go through the scriptures, you'll find verse by verse and chapter after chapter of God telling them how to observe them and how to enforce them and what's going to happen if they didn't obey those laws. There were various and sundry of penalties that were associated with the law. You commit adultery, what happened? What happened to the adulterer? They were stoned. Remember, the religious leaders reminded the Lord of that. And then of it, he said, remember our law? Moses said that you commit adultery, you be stoned. God had all of these. He knew, he knew. They, they, we believe there are several million people there, that wilderness experience. And he knew they were going to get along. He knew they needed laws. He knew they needed governance. He knew they needed orderly. He knew they needed not only the law, but they needed the enforcement of the law. Now, we're living in a society where we're kind of, that's slipping, isn't it? Yeah, there's a law. Well, is it really a law? You know? Uh, well, there is no law. There's no transgression, right? We talked about that last week. In other words, if I don't recognize this law and I do something to break it, I didn't break a law because I wasn't there in the first place. God knew better. He understood his people. And that is why, that is why, in the New Testament, we're told, to give supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving a thanks for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Why? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to pray for some ungodly guys? Why would we want to do that? That we may lead a what? Quiet. You've seen the riots lately? You've seen them burning buildings? See what's going on, and say, Oh Lord, where are these people? Where are these people? That we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. The obvious, the opposite of orderly contact and law and order is what? Anarchy and chaos. God knew better. He knew his people. But the here's the really interesting thing about this. Ark. Rather than destroy the law, he came to fulfill it. And the law points to us of God's son who came with God's law absolutely in his bosom. And as he walked this earth, he never once broke a single law. My law is in, your law is in my heart. I delight to do your will, oh my God. And then, as he walked this earth, never once breaking off something else. He said, think not that I've come to destroy it. I've got it in my bosom. I've been keeping it. Think not that I've come to destroy this. I've come rather to what? Fulfill. Ah, that's what he did, see? He fulfilled the law. He met its righteous demands, and we have been removed from the curse of the law. So the Ark of the Covenant, what a, what a nice, what a lovely thing it is that God designed for his people. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Ark in the next few weeks coming. Let's close in prayer. Father, indeed, we're thankful for this object lesson we receive of your dear Son, he came from heaven's glory, how he desired to dwell among men, how he made the provision, how he became the propitiation, the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins and not just for ours, but for the sins of the entire world. How thankful we are. We just pray that we'll be careful to follow the ark. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.